All right, our passage, primary passage for this day is from John chapter 18. It's on your handout. You can follow along with me as I read it out loud for us. Beginning in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. This is the word of the Lord. Pilate said to Jesus, what is truth? Perhaps you're here this morning and you or someone you know is stuck on that same question. In our present day and age, it's a big one. Is truth something that's flexible or is it something that's fixed? Is it self-determined? Or is it something that we discover and receive? Is it left to the individual experience and interpretation? Or could it be something that's universally binding, regardless of culture, regardless of class, regardless of color? Is it the truth? Or is it my truth? I could really take that question and stop now and just let you discuss around your tables for the rest of the morning. I'm not going to do that. Your table leaders might be thankful for that. But I do think it's something that I will give you ample time to return to because I think it's a fundamentally important question. What I want to do this morning is maybe lay a, a little bit of groundwork not only as it pertains to this question that Pilate poses, but also the comments of Jesus which precede it. Let's have some sympathy for Pilate. In our creed, he is eternally known as the one under whom Jesus Christ was crucified. Not how you want to be remembered. And he's in a precarious situation here, isn't he? If you were Pilate, how would you have handled Jesus? Jesus has been brought up on charges of treason, more or less, and by a, a kangaroo court of sorts. 
No witnesses were provided, just accusations, charges, verdicts given. And the accusation is that Jesus is claiming to be king of the Jews. But now Pilate, as as you can see from the passage, what he's hearing is something more than that. Jesus claims to be a king of a kingdom that's not even of this earth. And for Pilate, and actually for Rome in general, this can be a very dangerous thing. There certainly were many who would rise up insurrectionists, but this man has quite the following. And this man has reportedly been doing things that are unexplainable. And this man has angered the chief priests and the elders and the leaders of the religious group from which he comes. Also, very large and influential. And so Pilate is in a messy situation. He's trying to discern the truth. He's trying to figure out what to do with this well-known religious figure. And so he questions according to the charges brought. He discusses Jesus' kingship. That's the truth that's ultimately, in this conversation, being called into question. Just as it was with those who precedingly questioned Jesus. And the content of their dialogue is fascinating. You see, Pilate, he intends to engage the truth, but if you read it carefully, what actually ends up happening is in his pursuit to engage the truth, he engages a person. The questions are intensely personal. He even starts, you are the king of the Jews? And the way it's worded and the way that it's posed, the way it's recorded for us, it is posed in that way that it's almost surprising to Pilate that this man could be like the others who have been brought before him previous to this moment. He doesn't look like an insurrectionist. He doesn't smell like an insurrectionist. He doesn't behave like an insurrectionist. There is nothing obvious that would make the charges match the truth. And the conversation, because Jesus has a way of doing this, We come to him looking for answers and he presents himself. We come to him thinking about precepts or principles and he gives us a person. And so there's always this kind of convoluted dialogue that takes place with Jesus where he seems to be answering the question, but not really. You notice that? Or he's silent when words should be spoken. Just tell them the truth. Anybody ever feel that? Clear it up for us at least. But the king doesn't bend the knee to the curious man. Though he is sympathetic to him, there's nothing arrogant about Jesus' response. There's nothing insensitive about Jesus' response. But there is something incredibly prudent and incredibly selective about Jesus' response. And that's because the conversation isn't simply about figuring out the truth. It's about figuring out whether or not Jesus is the truth. Whether or not Jesus is the king of the Jews. Whether or not Jesus is this other type of king of some kingdom that's not of this earth. 
Whether or not Jesus is a criminal. It's about who Jesus truly is. And while trying to discern this truth, Pilate is confronted with this person, Jesus. The dialogue seems to go from facts to figure. And so I think you can actually reword his question. Not because what is truth is unimportant, but the dialogue itself lends itself to say, who is truth? And so what we see in this narrative quickly this morning, there's two points, not three. Should grant you some relief. Is that the truth of Jesus is personal and it demands a response. And that the truth of Jesus is powerful, but it is not oppressive. The truth of Jesus is personal and demands a response. One of the fundamental realities of the Christian faith is that the truth, as it is revealed to us by God and his word of truth, it's not only principles to follow, but it's also intensely personal. The the truth is often personified. Perhaps I can say it this way. Um, Jeremiah says, your words, your truth was found, and I ate them. And they became to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. For I'm called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. The Apostle John uh, begins his gospel with it this way. The word became flesh. The immaterial became material. That which could not be known made itself known. And not only that, it dwelled among us. The truth walked. The truth breathed. The truth lived. And he purposefully uses the word in the beginning to hearken back to Genesis 1. To talk about the creative word of God through which all things were made and because of which all things came into being. And so there's this personification of truth that we see throughout Scripture. The supremacy of Christ, which I've been told is the series for this fall, is that correct? The supremacy of Christ, (laughs) men's Bible study. Paul Goebel went out of town. I should have asked him that before he left. The supremacy of Christ over truth, it's not not just the, the revelation of principles that are true. It's the revelation of the person who is the truth. John also says this in his introduction to his gospel, that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so we receive the truth from a person, and we apply it to our lives, and to our community, and to our world. We discern what is true based on what he, the truth, tells us is true. This is one of the frustrations of those who are not Christian. It's one of the frustrations of those who are of a secular mindset. By the way, they never refer to themselves as secular. It's a very Christian way of talking about those who aren't Christian. But I think you get the point. If I don't believe in the person that you say is the truth, am I not able to discern anything that's true? And how do you even know that your truth is the right truth? Have you ever been faced with that question? Maybe just internally. That is actually the most important question to ask. 
Because if you are someone who seeks after the truth, you will certainly go through the pathway of principles and precepts. You will look at the natural world and try to make your way into the spiritual one. And that's a great path to follow. But ultimately, what is going to happen is this. You will not run into this dilemma of fact-based truth versus faith-based truth. Have you ever heard that? The reality of that argument, which seems like a pathway of trying to discern and discover the truth, is that in some way and in some form and in some fashion, all of it is a faith-based truth. Even the brightest scientist who is the greatest expert in his field still has more to learn. And we don't hold that against him. What he knows to be true is true. But he doesn't know it fully. And so he does research and development. He discovers more. And oftentimes in the field of science, what happens is those things which have been deemed true are amended or changed. There is a certain amount of factual evidence for which we should seek and try to find the truth. We in our world would call that a gift of common grace. That God has made himself known plainly in creation. And that if it wasn't for the sin in our hearts and our minds and that clouds our eyes, we could find him in it. The heavens declare his handiwork. But not because of the absence of facts, but because of the cloudiness that denies the reality of faith. We can only get so far. Let me say it this way. We can know truly, but never fully. Even though we ourselves are fully known. And so it's helpful in this pursuit of truth that what we realize is the pathway of precepts, the pathway of natural reality, these things that we walk on slowly and try to grope along and get ourselves to discerning what the actual truth of things is, that's a wonderful path to take. But in the end, you will have to form a conviction. In the end, you will have to take a step of faith, not an ignorant one that's not based on any factual thought, but one that has walked that path and will come to an end. And there will still be a gap. It will not be fully known. And a conviction will have to be formed and a conclusion will have to be made. The question is, what conclusion will you make? And I've seen this time and time again for those who are sincere seekers of heart who will walk along that path with their doubts and their previously held convictions. They will, not in the end, encounter more precepts. They will encounter a person. And like Pilate, ultimately, what will you do with him? He's claiming to be king. What will you do with this Jesus who presents himself before you and claims to be king? I would argue there may not be a more important question for you to answer. But like it is with Pilate, what you'll find is he doesn't present himself in an arrogant way. He doesn't present himself insensitively. He who is the truth highly regards the truth. It's his truth.
he rewards those who diligently seek after it. And so can you see or maybe feel how the, the truth is, it's not just precept, but it's very, very personal. The truth, little t, is intended to lead us to the truth, capital T. And as a matter of fact, if I could say it this way, contrary to our present day and age, it's fundamental to our faith that we derive truth from him, not self-determinate based on our own individual perception and experience. There's a sense of personal surrender that takes place as we engage the pursuit of him, the ultimate truth. We are not the origin and source of it. We receive it. We don't create it on our own. If we try to do that, it creates confusion. Maybe a visual demonstration will help. I always love show and tell. This is a work of art that was given to me by my best friend. I will not name him. If you're on the front row, you now know who it is. But he made this for me to be hung around my or above my first child's crib. If I were to take time right now and say, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get at your, your, your individual tables, and I want each of you at your tables to decide what you think this means. Okay? Here's what I would suspect is going to happen. A discussion will ensue, and it'll sound or go something like this. I have no idea. I didn't take art appreciation, and I still don't appreciate art. Right? In a group of guys, it might actually be uh, that some people would want to share how they feel about the painting because they can't derive any objective meaning from something that seems so convoluted and modern and actually intended to confuse. Right? But the conversation would take place, and some of you would say, well, this is what I see. And then someone else would say, well, this is what I see. And then someone else would say, this is what I see. And you know what? I'm willing to bet what's in my wallet, which may not be much, but it's something, that there would be a table of contradictions where you arrive at your truth, and you have to decide if your truth is better than, equal to, or more right than someone else's truth. And so you really have two options. Your table would either say, you know what? I think we're all right. Amidst the glaring contradictions and things that cannot fit together or are not even closely related, I really think the most charitable thing for us to do is to say, either who cares or, you know what? Your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. I celebrate your truth, even though it glaringly contradicts what I believe the truth to be. That's one option. Do we see that in our present day and age? Okay. There's another option. You could say, no, we have to give an answer because he's obviously going to call on table number 12, and I don't want to be the guy who doesn't have something to say. Right? And so you would come to a consensus. Okay, we, have, we obviously can't say that this is death and life. Right? Those things contradict. Why don't we all vote and agree that whatever the majority of us thinks is true, that's probably what's true. 
And so you could go by means of consensus rather than pure individualism. Right? And so four out of the seven of you agree that it's about Easter. And so you say Easter, even though there's three of you bowing your heads going, that's not even close to what I thought it was. Right? But there's a consensus about the truth. Okay, why do I say that? Either way is confusing. Either method is going to lead actually to not finding out what the truth is. The easiest and best way to find out what the truth of this painting is, is to ask the artist himself. What he intended, what he designed, what he created is the actual truth of the painting. And my experience of it and my interpretation of it should be brought under surrender to what he made it to be. Does that make sense? If I deny the artist, I will create a meaning for the painting, but I will never know the real thing. That's how the truth is. That's how the truth presents itself. If we deny the person, we're going to be left in somewhat of a convoluted mess. We're going to be lost in the arguments of my truth versus your truth. We're going to be lost in the arguments of, well, what does the consensus say? That's why it must be culturally bound in a certain time and space. And whatever the majority determines, that's what's true. There's danger in those things. Because what you lose is the truth. Jesus beckons, as we can see, Pilate to consider who he is. Even though Pilate's response is agnostic, relativistic. And we find out, and let me say this, I'm sympathetic to those who have seen history of those who have taken um, universal truth claims or absolute truth and have used it to very harmful and atrocious things. That's a historical fact. But the problem is not with truth claims themselves. We can't actually live without them. The problem is with the character and the content of the truth that's being claimed. And so the truth is not only personal and demands a response from us because we encounter a person, the truth is also very powerful. But what I want you to see this morning is that it's not intended to oppress, not the truth of Jesus. Uh, some of you probably are familiar with postmodernism. I am familiar, but not an expert, so I'm not going to uh, give a lengthy discussion about it. What I do want to point out is that um, its prevalence in our culture really started about midway through the 20th century. It became more and more and more prevalent. Now I think sociologists and philosophers would say we're in a post-postmodern age. Pretty soon I'm going to have even less idea of what's going on than what I did before. But it makes sense to me that there would be such an opposition to uh, the idea of these universal truth claims, and that's because they have been used for oppressive means, especially the first half of the 20th century. 
the middle of the 20th century. Atrocities were committed as the strong held their truth as a power play over the weak and marginalized. We can't ignore that, brothers. We shouldn't ignore that. But we do need to know that the opposite an equal reaction to that can be equally as dangerous. And we don't really have to go any farther from the narrative in front of us to see that. Pilate says, what is true? It's more of a self-defense than it is an actual worldview that's being presented. That pathway allows him to then go with his truth in front of the crowd of people and say, this is my truth. I find no crime in this man, which he repeats more than once. If you notice that. He knows the truth. Jesus is innocent. But he stands in front of the crowd and he leaves the conclusion to be drawn by them. The interpretive counsel for what the truth is in this matter is given into the hands of those whose own personal bias is going to have him killed. And so we have to be careful not to swing the pendulum one way or another. Because absolutism can be oppressive because the truth is powerful. And relativism can be oppressive because the truth is powerful. And this narrative shows us that. Our culture often denies it. The relativism in this story actually lets the guilty man go innocent and leaves the innocent man condemned. We know in God's providence that works out for our good. But it did not work out for Jesus' good. And so I just want to circle the wagon and even close maybe a little bit right on time today. And answer this question. It's a question I think Pilate, an answer that Pilate could have heard. What is the character and content of the truth claim of Jesus? If he is the truth, what is his truth? And if it is absolute, if it is universally binding on all mankind, man, woman, child, what makes it worth following? Okay? Because Jesus' truth is powerful, but it does not oppress. Okay? It does quite the opposite. The beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is his truth which he came to put in the flesh, he came to enact for us. He came to show us like a painting. Is that he sets men free. It's freedom, not oppression, that comes from the truth of God. We often see it so many times backwards. Perhaps I can just quote the three people who were closest to him as he walked the earth. John says, quoting Jesus, You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Okay, Paul says the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. And for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Do you see what he's saying? A submission to the truth and feeling confined and constrained is actually what leads to personal freedom. Tim Keller uses this analogy. It's like a fish if you take it out of the water, out of the confines for which it was created. 
While it may seem you are giving it ultimate and pure freedom by telling it that it no longer has to be constrained by that water, the truth is that its freedom in life exists in it. And when it gets removed from it, it slowly shrivels and dies. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ is that when we encounter this person who is the truth and we submit our ways to his truth, what we find is actually not oppression and slavery. What we find is freedom. And the opposite occurs when we refuse to do that. Though we think we are free, we are enslaved. And that's why those who are enslaved are those who, as Romans puts it, suppress the truth of God. And they exchange the truth of God for a lie. And the life of freedom that they now live in debauchery and all various kinds of immorality slowly suffocates, steals, kills, and destroys their life. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Through love, serve one another. And then Peter said this. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. The truth of Jesus is powerful, but it does not oppress. His absolutes set men free. Is the truth that you present to others a display of power that leads them to feeling oppressed? Or does your life of truth produce and show freedom? I think perhaps one of the greatest obstacles to this entire conversation is not the truth itself, but the ones who carry it. I just want to close with an admonition. Don't just point at the painting and talk about what it means. Represent the artist. Don't just talk about the truths of God. Represent God himself. Don't just speak of the precepts and the principles of Jesus Christ. Represent Jesus Christ himself. Because the type of king that he is, Pilate, is not what you think. He doesn't have heavy-handed warriors who are making war. He's actually the type of king, if I can answer Pilate's final question, so is he a king? I would like to bear witness to this truth. He is a king. But he's not one like the world has ever known. He's a king who gives up his own freedom for the sake of ours. He's a king who will take on a crown of thorns so we might obtain a crown of glory. He's a king who would become a servant, a slave, so that we might be free. He's the type of king who would present himself to die as an innocent man so that we who are guilty might have life. Brothers, those of you who are in Christ, as we pursue the truth and present the truth, let us do it in a way that represents him who we say we follow. Not with arrogance, not with insensitivity, with prudence, with courage. 
with the kind of we're willing to die for the sake of love. So that not just our words, but our way becomes a compelling force for the truth of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your truth. It is intended to set us free. Let us not be afraid of its confines. Our sinful nature will buck against that every day. Our mind and reason will tell us that the path to individual freedom is actually the absence of that kind of constraint. But that's where the upside-downness of this narrative and the conversation that takes place shows us that the upside-downness of that way of thinking. What's actually true is sometimes the other way around. Lord Jesus, you are a king. We thank you that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And may we strive not just to discover the truth of all that we see, but we might strive to discover the truth of who you are. Give us the courage and desire to do that, I pray. In your name, amen.